Hi, and welcome to episode 152 of the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast, and I am Laurel Bannock. Today, I have just finished another great conversation with another double act, which I aim to bring many of these double acts to you this year in 2021 on the podcast series. Today, my double act consisted of Professor Craig Sale and Dr. Brian Saunders. And if you're familiar with with these guys, you'll probably know that we'll be talking about beta alanine today. And boy, was it an interesting conversation. I have actually done a podcast with Craig ooh, about five years ago now with Abby Smith-Ryan, Dr. Abby Smith-Ryan, where we did get into beta alanine. And of course, one could, and quite rightly could argue that not a lot has really changed in the world of beta alanine, uh, at least not dramatically so. But we still managed to talk for 90 minutes today. And I feel that we had an incredibly productive conversation about the state of the science and research as it relates to beta alanine, what all that means with regards to carnosine and carnosine concentrations in the muscle, why that's relevant as it relates to what goes on within skeletal muscle, particularly during high-intensity exercise and factors such as the accumulation of hydrogen ion accumulation, resulting, of course, in increased acidity and the impact that that has on fatigue and the performance-limiting impact that that can have on both performance, of course, but also exercise capacity in general, and of course, training adaptations thereof. So you'll find all of that of great interest where our focus is, of course, going to be on nutrition and in particular, in this case, a supplement being beta alanine. So I can't wait for you to get stuck into that conversation that we had today. Before I do that, I just wanted to plug what we do at the Institute of Performance Nutrition. If you're not aware of what we're up to, we're all about bridging the gap between science and practice. We have a number of endeavors that we focus on. The podcast is just one of those tools, if you like, that you as students or practitioners or researchers can use to assist in your acquiring of knowledge in the field of sport and exercise nutrition and related areas. We have a number of other things that we do, namely our professional Diploma in Performance Nutrition, which is a level seven program, uh, level seven on the EQF framework being master's degree level, but it is very much a practice focused program. So whether you are a nutritionist or a dietitian or a sports scientist or a personal trainer, even you will hugely benefit from our uh, 100% online diploma program if your interests is in becoming as effective as a practitioner as you can be, where we also have our SEMPRO platform system, which is software, if you like, for practicing sport and exercise nutritionists and nutritionists working with active people where we provide you with a suite of, of business tools and uh, nutrition coaching tools to help you become awesome in your practice and get highly effective outcomes with your clients. Go check out our platform. And there are going to be a number of other things that we're going to be pushing out this year, including some short courses, some CPD, and some new series of research as well. Very excited about all of that. But enough of plugging everything we do at the IOPN. The reason why you're listening to this podcast is you want to hear 
what we had to discuss today all about beta alanine with Craig Sell and Brian Saunders. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. I am very excited to bring another double act to you today where we're going to be talking about beta alanine and uh, that in itself may give you some kind of a hint as to some of the people that I could be talking to but to save you the anxiety of trying to work it out I am very happy to welcome Professor Craig Sale and Dr. Brian Saunders. Hi guys how are you doing? Yeah good thanks Brian how are you? I'm excellent I'm excellent. Craig look you and I have known each other for years now in many different capacities and we have actually done a podcast before on beta alanine uh, about five years ago i know when we first talked about doing another podcast it was a case of well not a lot has changed since those days but there has been some developments and that is why i'm particularly excited to get back into this topic because it remains a very important topic in sport and exercise nutrition where there has always been a great deal of interest in ergogenic aids and supplements and so on. But relative to the amount of excitement there is on that topic, there aren't actually many tools in the toolbox. There aren't that many supplements available. And this, this though, is, is one of them. And, of course, Brian, I'm welcoming you to, to the podcast. So I'm super excited to have you come join Craig and I on this conversation. And uh, you, of course, have also accumulated a tremendous amount of knowledge and research in this area. But let's just start with Craig. Give us a quick overview for those that that haven't listened to some of my previous podcasts that you've been on, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, so thanks very much for inviting me on again, Lawrence. So I'm a a professor of human physiology and the director of the Sport Health and Performance Enhancement Research Group at Nottingham Trent University now. Um, I guess my, as far as this podcast is concerned, my work on beta-alanine started when I was a senior lecturer back at the University of Chichester, uh, where I was working fairly closely at that time, and and quite luckily, as far as my future career is concerned, with a guy called Professor Roger Harris. And there we started to do quite a few of the sort of early studies, particularly early human studies, around beta-alanine supplementation and its effect on performance. And probably over the next, like I said, that was probably early 2000s. I think we published the first paper in 2006, 2007, the first couple of papers. But, but we had some of that data around, you know, a little bit earlier than that. We were just trying to accumulate enough data to decide what was, what was and what wasn't going on. But over the sort of next 10 or 12 years or so, I, I sort of conducted quite a bit of research on beta-alanine supplementation. Um, and that's quite off a bit more in recent years. And, and Brian and the group at Sao Paulo has really taken over the, the, the mantle with regards to the, the top end of the latest stuff in, in this area. So they're, they're now sort of the world leaders in that area, I would say. And, and I'm sort of becoming surplus to requirements. But I can at least talk historically about beta alanine. You're, you're, not a, you're not surplus to requirements, Greg. We'll, we'll still find a use for you one way or the other. <laughs> at least someone can know it. Yeah, we'll leave that one there. Brian, tell us about yourself then. So Craig's obviously done a pseudo intro there, but where are you firstly and what are you up to? Well, first of all, thanks a lot for uh, having me here, Lauren. It's a pleasure. So currently, I'm a a researcher and a lecturer in sport and exercise science at the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. A lot of my research 
is on the effects of sport nutrition and exercise physiology and with a specific interest in nutritional supplements to improve exercise performance and the mechanisms underpinning these, these improvements. And so my work in this research line actually started about 12 years ago now when I undertook a PhD at Nottingham Trent University under the supervision of Caroline Sunderland and, as it happens, the, man, the other man in the room here, Craig Sale. So that's where my journey with beta-alanine began. And sort of ever since, you know, after completing my PhD, I moved over here. So it's almost nine years I've been here. And as Craig says, there was already a great group of, you know, researchers working on beta-alanine over here. And, and we've continued that process over the last few years. And don't worry, Craig, we'll still invite you onto the odd paper or two. Yeah. <laughs> so... Craig, you, you mentioned Roger Harris there, and of course we did sort of do a bit of a note to, to Roger or Professor Harris back on the podcast five years ago because, of course, he is particularly relevant to this topic that we're going to get into and has influenced both of you hugely over time. But, you know, when we start thinking about the amount of time that's gone by, the amount of time that's gone into researching this what could be thought of as a pretty small area in, in many respects. And we take that back to when carnosine and or beta-alanine were first identified, bearing in mind it's 2021 now. Craig and I are both in the UK. Brian, you're out in, in Brazil. This is very, very much an international endeavour, and yet this story continues. It's still not a finished project. Craig, if it's even possible to give us a quick... 101 on the history of beta-alanine, I think that would be a great place for us to start. Yeah, I guess the important thing is really to realize that, that although we talk a lot about beta-alanine supplementation, what we're really interested in is the, is the dipeptide carnosine. And the idea really is that, well, in fact, we're not even that interested in carnosine as far as muscle performance is concerned. What we're really interested in is a small part of the histidine molecule that makes up the carnosine molecule. And I'll sort of explain where we come from to that, if that makes some sense. So it's the carnosine molecule that's abundant in, in skeletal muscle. It's in millimolar concentrations in skeletal muscle. And one of the things that it can do is to, is to buffer the pH and so it, it can control pH within reasonably tight limits up to a certain point. And that is particularly important, of course, for, for high-intensity exercise. And that carnosine is basically made up of two amino acids. It's made up of a, a beta-alanine, which is the, the, the topic of interest specifically today, and also a histidine. And generally, you can consume histidine, you can consume beta-alanine, you can consume carnosine within the diet. One of the problems is that there's a, an enzyme in the plasma that splits that dipeptide into its two constituent amino acids. And you need to then get those two constituent amino acids around the body and taken up into the skeletal muscle. The problem that you've got is that the limitation then to the transport and the resynthesis of that dipeptide in the skeletal muscle is limited by how much beta-alanine is available. And we showed that reasonably straightforwardly in that first 2006 paper that I, I mentioned in the introduction there. That's how we've got on to beta-alanine supplementation is that we're not particularly interested, as I said, in the beta-alanine. What we are interested in is trying to increase the carnosine content in the skeletal muscle, which allows an improvement in, its, in the muscle's ability to be able to handle the hydrogen ions that are produced when you, you know, exercise really hard. 
There are a number of other purported physiological mechanisms for carnosine in skeletal muscle that, that, that have a certain implication for performance or even a wider health implication. But really, generally speaking, much of the evidence in, in the exercise field points towards a, a positive effect on pH regulation. So that's really the sort of historical development of where the idea behind increasing the, the carnosine content in the skeletal muscle comes from and the reason for beta-alanine supplementation specifically. And Craig, how, you know, given you guys both come from the same background with regards to the legacy provided by Roger Harris in this, in this regard, I mean, how, saw this more or less firsthand, how did this even come about? Was this sort of an accident which happens in, in research or was this a byproduct of a very long process of looking at something very specific? Like what, I mean, how does this, how did this even come about? Yeah, well, I mean, my, my involvement in it came obviously a little bit later than Roger's because Roger had been involved particularly in looking at things that might improve the, the muscle performance, the exercise performance of horses at, at one stage. And, and obviously, as you know, he was very interested in creatine sort of by way of looking at other things in the muscle that might influence performance also came by this this potential for, for carnosine to act as a, an intracellular pH buffer. And of course, when you're talking about high intensity exercise capacity in particular, the ability to be able to handle that hydrogen ion production certainly at that time was considered to be very, very important for, for the ability to, to continue that high intensity exercise. So, I mean, I think it sort of came from those comparative animal studies. And you can see that when... So, so humans actually have got a, a reasonably small amount of, of intramuscular carnosine if you compare that to some other species who, who exercise hard to, to hunt or exercise hard to avoid being killed by a hunter, a predator. So, for example, you know, hunting dogs, deer, horses have, have much, much higher carnosine concentrations or histidine-containing dipeptide concentrations in their muscles than humans do. And so some of that comparative physiology, there's, there's a nice paper that's written relatively recently by a, a colleague of Brian's, Ema Dolan, which, which looked at some of the history of that comparative, those comparative studies that, that sort of underpinned that rationale. I came in really right at the start of the human, if you wanted, the human investigation in relation to the effects of beta-alanine and, and, and carnosine. And that was, like I say, probably early 2000s when when I first met up with Roger over initially a plate of fish and chips believe it or not so that's how it all started for me it was fishing plate of fish and chips on a Friday and we had a discussion about this and and I'd recently just moved after my PhD at John Moore's down to Chichester to start my first job and and I I was looking for for something to get involved with as far as research was concerned and we had a discussion that extended well beyond dinner and pudding in you know for a couple of hours about this this topic and it was quite clear that it was going to be quite exciting and it was interesting to me so that that's then I said look you know I'm keen to get involved in this give me give me some jobs to do and and, and Roger was keen to do that so yeah so how it all started for me basically. and many fish and chips later <laughs> here we are yes yeah too many <laughs> so Brian well with fish and chips being the segue to our next conversation look I know You've started off there and you are where you are now. And we're going to delve into what you found in your work and research during the course of this conversation. But 
I think one thing that would be rather useful, given the variety of people we have as, as an audience, sports scientists and nutritionists, dietitians, personal trainers, and so on, you know, we're talking about something that's referred to referred to being as a, a, an ergogenic aid or it has ergogenic properties. Why? What does that term mean? And what is the significance of that as it relates to this sort of area of science and why people like yourself are still spending so much time researching ergogenic properties of, of substances? Sure. So, yeah, obviously the term an ergogenic aid is, is something that suggests that it's, it's something that can improve exercise performance. Anything could potentially be an ergogenic aid. It could be, you know, a, a new set of shoes. It could be a supplement. It could be food. It could be your training. But then obviously when we get down to sort of maybe the, the finer details, that's where these sort of minor nutritional ergogenic aids come into play, of which beta-alanine is one. And so if you actually look at a couple of years ago, the International Olympic Committee came out with sort of a consensus statement about guidelines for nutrition and supplements and, and what kind of role they could play on exercise performance. And I think it was I think it was pretty groundbreaking because it was the first time that they actually made reference to supplements and their potential and their ergogenic potential. And so they only highlighted five supplements that could be considered sort of to have good to strong evidence that it could in some situations improve exercise performance. And beta-alanine was in fact one of these. And I suppose the reason we continue to do this research, you know, I think there is a good evidence base right now that we can suggest that yes, it is one of those that works. But I think there's there's always still more to be done. Now we're trying to delve into the details. You know, in, in what specific kind of activities can it work? How can we maybe optimize its efficacy and the little details like that? And so that, I think, what is what drives us to, to continue researching. And Craig, I remember having, um, you came in, well, you've done lots of presentations for us over the years, but one topic you, you gave us, which was particularly interesting, was this concept of a supplement and what is a supplement and you know, how do we differentiate supplements from an aid, ergogenic aid? And, and then there's other things people supplement that may not necessarily be legal. And then, of course, there's this issue of a substance in isolation is not necessarily the same thing as a combination of substances. Perhaps, you know, and I know that's a podcast in itself, obviously, but what are your thoughts on that, Craig, since we are talking about something that ultimately is taken as a supplement? Yeah, and I think I think what what that is really suggesting in some respects is that that what you're doing is supplementing. You're adding something additional to what's there available in the diet. Now, of course, under these circumstances, as I said earlier, you can consume these things in the diet, particularly if you're a meat eater. You know, so so there's relatively high concentrations of these things in, in carnosine. I'm talking about or histamine-containing peptides in beef, chicken, pork, turkey, fish, since we go back to fish and chips. So, I mean, I think, you know, that there, there are these dietary sources. It's not necessarily something that isn't provided in the diet, but what you are providing here, and the same for creatine, actually, of course, is what you're providing here is concentrations in excess of the amount that you would normally be able to receive in the diet. Of course, there are other supplements that might not necessarily be immediately available in the diet or whatever. But, but I think what we're talking about here is something that is available in the diet. 
And what you're trying to do is additionally supplement it. And so I, you know, sometimes sort of play devil's advocate a little bit and sort of say, well, how is dietary supplementation any different to doping? You know, how is it any different to, to taking EPO or stimulating the, the you know, your, your testosterone, for example? Because, okay, you know, those things are, are naturally occurring, not in the way in which you give it, but then neither is beta-alanine or creatine. Those things are considered different for some reason, but you know, they're both performance enhancing. I sometimes just sort of play devil's advocate around that little discussion there a little bit in terms of, well, well, is there really a difference in terms of at least theoretically between what you're trying to do with a, a nutritional ergogenic aid, a nutritional supplement and performance enhancing drugs? And, and sometimes actually when you follow it right the way through, it's, it's not as easy an argument to resolve as, as you might initially imagine. Yeah, that's the issue, though, isn't it? It's this this question of, are we supplementing? Are we normalizing? Are we compensating for something? You know, there's, there's many different, I guess, rationales behind whilst we may argue the reasons for, for taking this over and above. Is it safe? Is it banned? And these are the things that will unravel a bit in this conversation shortly. But Brian, we're talking about something a little bit loosely here. So let's just focus into you know an area of the body where this is particularly relevant which is muscle when we talk about nutrition we do talk a lot about fueling we talk about macronutrients you know proteins carbohydrates and from a very reductionist perspective you know they i guess we talk about fuel is providing energy for locomotion let's say we talk about protein for building up the muscle the size of size of the engine but when we're talking about something like beta alanine or carnosine specifically it gets a little bit more complicated perhaps you could just help us understand what it is we're now starting to talk about and why why is this relevant well from a basic functional perspective as it relates to how the human body performs so uh, i think craig craig almost alluded to it a a little while earlier is that sort of particularly during High intensity activities sort of we is where we see that beta-alanine might be of interest. And again, that's because of carnosine in the muscle. When we look at high intensity activity, what we see is that what comes alongside that is unfortunately a sort of uh, an increase in the amount of accumulation of metabolites, in particular hydrogen ions, which cause an acidification of the muscle, so muscle acidosis. And we know from several studies, you know, obviously there's contrasting opinions, but I think in general, the, the majority of the research does point to a reduced muscle pH that can be associated with high intensity exercise can impact upon exercise performance. And this is because the hydrogen ions can interfere with the contractility of the muscle, can interfere with energy production. And so obviously this will can, can cause fatigue or a loss of performance. And so, as Craig also mentioned, sort of carnosine we know has a role in buffering in the muscle. So it can actually sequester these hydrogen ions and better maintain the the pH of the muscle. This is the body's own intracellular buffering capacity. But if we can then increase the amount of carnosine within the muscle, we can therefore increase its buffering capacity, thereby minimizing even further a potential reduction in muscle pH and so maintain to a better extent exercise performance. So I think from that aspect, 
I hope that that's that's sort of why we're we're really interested in in beta alanine and to to increase muscle carnosine for performance. Craig, why is it relevant though from the perspective of supplementation? I mean, okay, look, we're you know we go through the diet. This is a perfectly natural thing within the body, within the muscle. The body, you know, is doing all the hard work, so so to speak, in terms of managing this for the most part. Why would we even bother to supplement? What's ultimately the argument for that? Well, I guess the you know ultimately. It, Ultimately, the argument is try to optimize or, or maximize, depending on which way you're looking at it and what supplement you're talking about, but, but trying to, to maximize and optimize the concentrations in, in the body. And, and what, what's attractive about carnosine is, is one of the few ways that, in theory, you can increase the buffering capacity of the muscle. So that there are a number of different things in the muscle, muscle proteins themselves, the bicarbonate concentration, phosphate concentrations in the muscle that, that can help to, to buffer the acidosis produced during high-intensity exercise. But a lot of those things are quite difficult to change. And so one of the things that you can do with carnosine into, is to increase its content in the muscle. And again, it's, it's kind of fairly analogous to, to the creatine story. People may or may not be more, more familiar with. But it, you know, similarly to creatine, what you're trying to do is provide additional we're trying to supplement what's available from the diet by providing additional, in this case, beta-alanine to increase carnosine, or in that case, additional creatine. In order to be able to get the levels at which we're supplementing from the diet, you'd have to eat a ridiculous amount of meat, talking about kilo and a half or something at least of, of meat to get the sorts of concentrations that we're talking about, providing specifically as a supplement to the diet. And of course, there are other groups, you know, vegetarian and vegan athletes, for example, who may not be getting as much of these things in their diet as, as somebody who follows a, an omnivorous diet. So it, it may well, in theory, be, be even more important for, for them because they're, they're, they're consuming very, very low levels of, of these things in their diet by comparison. Really, what it comes down to is is trying to by trying to maximise and optimise the the muscle concentration for this specific purpose. I, I hasten to add, you, you're providing much much more to the, the than you could consume in the diet naturally. At least, unless you were a really really a big fan of meat eating, which I am. But even I would struggle with that, to be honest. And especially though those folks in South America, they can consume vast quantities of a world. Yeah, if you, if you can't get if you can't get those levels in Brazil, you're not going to get your those levels anywhere in my exactly. experience. Exactly. Okay, so but this is what's interesting because whether you're vegetarian, vegan, a fruitarian, a breatharian possibly might not enter into this conversation. But ultimately this is something that's going on within the muscle and to a greater or lesser extent there is this acidification as you call it within the muscle and there is a need to buffer that increase in these hydrogen ions but brian is this the same for everyone is this something i mean how relevant actually is this to a spectrum of people that exist out there from sedentary people to recreational to elite athletes and of course the many kinds of athletic endeavors that exist out there what makes this relevant or not relevant to to all of those areas yeah it's a good point because as we said if if we think there may be alternate roles that carnosine plays within the muscle but we believe 
or the one that's undisputed is, is as a pH buffer, then it only really becomes particularly necessary or important if, if you are incurring some sort of acidification of the muscle, this increase in hydrogen ions. Possibly, you know, for that individual who's, you know, a couch potato just sat on, on their screen all day not doing anything, the relevance to this individual, you know, is obviously probably very, very low. And then as well, when you're starting to look at those athletic individuals, that ranges from anybody who might go for the odd plod every day to maybe those physically active people, then getting towards the more elite athlete. Again, you've got a question, if it can improve your performance, if it can help you minimize fatigue a bit more, how relevant is it to you? If you're not competing, does it really matter? There's obviously that question for maybe it's much more relevant only to the elite athlete where a gain of half a percent, one percent that you might get from a supplement makes a difference. But to the bloke who who's running five kilometers and, and he runs three seconds faster, does it does it really matter? And then within potentially that athlete population who it matters for, you know, how relevant is it for your sport? And, and potentially we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. But again, how necessary is improved increased buffering capacity to your particular sport. So there are definite considerations to make before sort of just running to the shop and, and buying this and, and taking it on a daily basis. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, this area I feel is particularly relevant to those of us that are not just contemplating whether beta-alanine has a, has a value, but there are going to be times when perhaps you should take it, and then there might be times when you shouldn't take it. Even in a group of people where it is, you know, it is something that's going to be of value, there are some issues there. So, Craig, we're talking about this idea of increased acidity. We're talking about the way the body might deal with that through well-developed buffering mechanisms. But, of course, when we look at why we train and the different types of training strategies that exist, we'll be aware, of course, that there are ways to impact buffering and buffering capacity. And I think it would be useful if maybe you could just quickly give us a just a quick overview as to, you know, what's going on there. And I know you've already dipped into this, but I think since we're talking about the impact that this has on performance, and as I've just mentioned, there are scenarios where we where we do and then there's scenarios where we don't necessarily want to be buffering this acidity perhaps, or or you know, you you can correct me if I'm wrong. What's going on there and, and why is this such an important area for us to spend time on and for you guys to continue researching into? Yeah, so, so like I said, I mean, earlier on, there are a number of different ways in which you could potentially, or a number of existing systems in which you could buffer the hydrogen ion production in muscle. And the first port of call there is, of course, the physicochemical buffers in the muscle. And these, like I said, include the muscle protein themselves it includes histidine containing dipeptide which in in humans you're, you're talking about carnosine there, there are others i should say and different species but for humans it is carnosine we're specifically focused upon of course there's the the bicarbonate pool in muscle as well that could that could contribute and the phosphate pool in muscle that could contribute but one of the big things and why we focus on carnosine is, is because it's one of the things that you can easily increase. Now, of course, you know, with different training modalities and things, you could also increase your, your muscle proteins, of course, by generating a, a muscle hypertrophic response. But 
Of course, it's difficult to significantly increase that muscle hypertrophic response. Certainly it is for me as I'm getting older, it's becoming harder and harder. But, but I mean, also trying to do that quickly creates a problem. So I think one of the things that, that we can see here is in, in a relatively you know, short period of time, a few weeks, you can reasonably significantly increase the ability of the muscle to, to, to buffer those hydrogen ions. Now, of course, there's also a dynamic buffering system which allows the, or which transports those hydrogen ions out of the muscle where they can also then get, get buffered in the blood. And, and that's a, a continual process at the same time. And of course, the, the intramuscular buffers are that sort of first port of call. And, and if you're talking about, for example, isometric exercise, then they're the, the only option. Of course, during dynamic exercise, like I say, where you've got adequate perfusion of the muscle, you, you, you also bring in these dynamic buffering systems into play. And of course, that is where things like, you know, sodium bicarbonate supplementation comes in, which is, again, a completely different topic. But, but you can increase the extracellular buffering um, of these hydrogen ions by, by increasing the plasma bicarbonate concentration. And obviously, you know, Brian's group is also doing quite a bit of, of work on this as well at the moment and producing some, some nice recent papers. But so that's kind of where it is. It's just an easy way. It's not the only way, but it's an easy way of quickly or relatively quickly increasing the buffering capacity of the muscle. And, and of course, the other thing to be said about inducing significant muscle hypertrophy is that there are certain sports certain elements where you wouldn't necessarily want to significantly increase that 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 muscle size so and that's kind of where the the theory comes from for it and, as well as it's you know other purported roles but i think that's a you know, slightly different conversation as well that's the, the broad reason for the, the supplementation as far as the intramuscular buffering aspect of it goes Brian, we're, you know, and i'm hanging around this topic because i think it's particularly relevant to understanding how, why, you know, when not, et cetera, to use beta-alanine in terms of justifying it one way or the other in a performance nutrition strategy is this concept of this accumulation of hydrogen ions. This is something that occurs within the muscle. It's, a, it's normal. But what are the implications of that increase in hydrogen ion accumulation? And are we, are we looking at this as something that is on a practical level, highly impactful across all spectrums of exercise intensity, or are we looking at a particular area where this might have more ramifications, particularly as it, it might negatively impact, impact performance? What, what are the areas that we should be paying attention to here? Certainly, we see large accumulations or much larger accumulations of hydrogen ions and subsequently acidosis during those high-intensity activities which uh, where the sort of predominant energy supply is from anaerobic glycolytic sources you know th those kinds of much longer duration exercises you know maybe 10 kilometer running up to sort of marathon pace you know these are these are much more aerobic activities where we see much lower accumulation of of hydrogen ions in the muscle and so hydrogen ion accumulation might not be particularly limiting to this kind of activity. But when we go to sort of the, the much shorter duration activities, in particular, what we see sort of exercise approximately sort of 30 seconds to 10 minutes in duration, these are the kind of activities 
especially in competition where you can, you know, you can go all, all out or almost all out working at a quite a high relative intensity. And so a lot of the energy contribution will come from anaerobic glycolysis. And this leads to a subsequent increase in hydrogen ion accumulation. And so particularly during these kinds of activities where you're working at a high relative intensity, we see large accumulations of hydrogen ions and these are particularly susceptible to potential changes in, in buffering capacity. So, Craig, should we be aware or concerned with any potential influence of things like young muscle, old muscle, and by that I mean age, gender, those kinds of things? Like we see these things being relevant maybe in some other areas, like and I've spoken to you and Kirsty about bone, for example, and I know there are implications for protein needs and the impact of things like leucine on muscle and age and so on. Is, is this an area that we see is also relevant with things like this hydrogen ion accumulation and the importance and role? Uh, and I'm thinking things like storage and or the overall management by the, by the body within the muscle of things like carnosine. Is there anything there that, that's relevant to this conversation? Not so much really in, in terms of this, but I mean, I, I think generally speaking, males do tend to have higher uh, whole muscle carnosine contents than, than females do. So, so you know, normally at, without supplementation, sort of males are around 20, 21 millimole per kilogram of dry muscle and females are sort of down about 17 millimole per kilogram dry muscle. But, but quite a bit of that might be accounted for for differences in fiber type, for example, because we also know that, that these fast twitch type 2 muscle fibers, they contain more carnosine than the, than the type 1 fibers, which again kind of perfectly links into the, the whole role of intra, in intramuscular buffering and, and that kind of principle. Because obviously, you know, they're, they're, these are the fast twitch fibres that are involved in, in the performance of high intensity exercise activities. But I don't know really specifically of too much direct information that would suggest that males and females respond differently to supplementation, for example. They, you know, they seem to, so both muscle fibre types seem to respond reasonably similarly to, to supplementation. And as far as I'm aware, Brian can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm not aware of too much information that would suggest that the response would be different in, in males and females. Anecdotally, there's a few little bits and pieces that have suggested that maybe females experience a little bit more paresthesia, which is one of the side effects of, of the supplement than males. And, but that might have something to do with, the, with the, the level of relative dose between the two per, per unit of body weight, for example. And I think, you know, certainly in terms of age, we've, we've not shown any, any differences there in terms of, you know, tolerance to the supplement or responses therein. So we've, we've performed a, a couple of studies in, in older individuals and they seem to tolerate the supplementation reasonably well. And there doesn't seem to be too much difference in the way in which the muscle responds to supplementation. So, so I mean, I don't think, I don't think really there's, there's too many issues there. Well, that's a good thing then. That, keep, that helps simplify a few matters. And I'm just simply mentioning it because that can be an issue across age and gender and various other things, which people are not aware necessarily could be a factor worth considering. No, I think, I think the only thing that kind of 
you know, like I say, really accounts for some of the, the absolute differences there is, is probably more related to the differences or the changes in muscle fiber type rather than the actual carnosine carnosine responses themselves. I don't know if Brian would agree with me, but, but that's kind of how I feel about it right now. So look, if we're we're talking about the muscle functioning and we're talking about this in the context of exercise capacity and performance, and as you've mentioned, this is for shorter events, but not necessarily less than 30 seconds, and of course anything more than 10 minutes, this is also unlikely to be of any huge significance, although of course many events involve intermittent activities of course and this is where things get a bit complicated because there are many reasons that can result in reduced performance and of course we use we use a word that can be a bit vague at times like fatigue for example what are brian what what are the implications of carnosine and and this whole hydrogen ion accumulation and and this concept of fatigue within that sort of 30 second to 10 minute spectrum is there anything there that that you think there's that's worth discussing at this point well i, I suppose you know as uh, as we've mentioned it might be sort of the the optimal time frame during which beta alanine might lead to performance improvements and so a few years back we did perform a meta-analysis in which we kind of pulled all of the studies in the literature together and and we did show that for sort of specific activities, 30 seconds to 10 minutes in duration. You know, those, those uh, high-intensity activities, these were the most susceptible to improvements with beta alanine supplementation. So if you think about the kind of modalities within that time frame, you might think a 2,000-meter rowing, 4-kilometer cycling time trial performance, 100 and 200-meter swimming. So during these events probably towards the latter stages of these events, as the accumulation of hydrogen ions increases, they start to become limiting to performance. You know, generally not to complete total fatigue, but, you know, that individual is struggling to go just that little bit faster and so beat or or go for that little bit longer. And so beta-alanine seems to allow those individuals within these specific kind of timeframes to be able to just maybe push out that that extra bit of effort for just that little bit longer, meaning, you know, they've gone that little bit quicker within within their specific event. So it, it seems pretty clear that the, the advantages of delaying the onset of fatigue as it relates to all-out performance or bouts of all-out performance, whether it's a football pitch or a boxing match or hill sprints on the bike or what I can see, I can see that. I think Another area for this, of course, is during during training, Craig. And how should we be looking at this as a way of improving exercise capacity over a more chronic time period? Why is this relevant in that regard? Yeah, I think that there's, you know, by by comparison, there's there's not as much research on on that sort of function as as there is in in terms of the sort of single, you know, application of of exercise performance. But theoretically, you could see almost a, a bigger effect, an indirect effect, if you like, of being able to increase the amount of high-intensity training performed, which would then subsequently have an effect on your exercise performance because you've been able to train harder for longer. So, I mean, I think 
it would be nice if there was quite a bit more or a bit more research on this actually but theoretically anyway i could see where there would be a you know a potential strong benefit of that provided of course that you're, you're talking about untethered training so you're talking about sort of maximal training that you're not you're not stopping at a set point and the reason why i say that is because obviously carnosine works best in allowing the exercise capacity to to increase so therefore if you were untethering high intensity training and you were saying you know perform as hard as you can for as long as you can that type of thing then i could see i could certainly see a benefit for supplementing with beta valanine to increase the muscle carnosine content for that type of activity and of course you, you may well then generate a knock-on effect for your performance so i mean it, it could it could just as easily generate an indirect effect on performance as it might generate a direct effect on performance so you guys have been using the term capacity and maximal and of course the other side of that is submaximal there's clearly in both training and performance you go through rounds of submaximal and potentially maximal performance although there's plenty of events which do not go to maximal levels of performance is that then brian something that that really is an important factor here as it relates to beta alanine usage and what we can expect to get out of that given not everyone trains as hard as they possibly should if they're particularly if they're recreational athletes whereas certain kinds of elite athletes Although their event may be submaximal, their training may involve maximal training sessions in you know in, in their periodization strategies and so on. Is there something there that we need to be bearing in mind? I know we've sort of touched on this, but I think I wanted to address it directly. Yeah, it, it's a good point because I think you know obviously a lot of a lot of people bandy around the term exercise performance and, and maybe they don't quite understand exercise capacity and then. Sort of within the literature, we use what are sort of termed capacity tests and performance tests. And so, generally, what we what we define as an exercise capacity test is, as Craig said, sort of almost that untethered test where you allow an individual to go to their maximum, to go to the end. And that that could be at any kind of intensity, but you you're asking that individual to go almost and blow out all they have in that exercise bout. You know, if you think about in real life, what does that equate to? Well, if you think about sort of some of these domestiques in cycling in the Tour de France who are cycling, riding for their team leader, you know, these are the kind of guys who are going to go all out until they really can't go anymore. And then they'll drop off the front and then they'll sort of be going, they'll finish the, the, the stage 20, 30 minutes down. Then we have also what we call performance tests, which are then more, you know, what people will, will recognize where you try to do something as quickly as possible or do as much as possible within a set time frame. For example, you know, an 800 meter run, a four kilometer time trial where you try to finish these races as quickly as possible. Our research has suggested that exercise performance generally sees slightly lower benefits than exercise capacity. And again, this might simply be due to the actual amount or, or accumulation of hydrogen ions in, in the muscle, which in principle could be larger during exercise capacity tests because you're going to your maximum, whereas in exercise performance tests, we might see a slightly lower 
increase in hydrogen ion accumulation, perhaps due to due to pacing. So I just wanted to, just because it's in my head, I didn't want to ignore the difference between aerobic and anaerobic training. And of course, most events, as we've already inferred, is going to be a combination of these things. But the impact of beta alanine on on strictly anaerobic training relative to purely aerobic training. Is there something there, Brian, that, that we should be looking at? Or is it purely this business of it's a combination of these activities and that's the reality of real life and real life training? Or given that science does like to reduce things to its simple parts, is there something there worth thinking about? Yeah, well, I definitely think some of our studies sometimes are too simplistic or we, we look at it in a far too simplistic way. So uh, by that, I mean, you know, a more aerobic activity then. So something like a, a 10 kilometer, 20 kilometer, 20 kilometer time trial. And then we, we, we supplement with beta alanine. We'll have the people perform it pre and post supplementation and we see if they improve. And then generally we say, ah, we didn't see an improvement. And this is because, as I mentioned, aerobic activity is far less impacted by hydrogen ion accumulation than those shorter high intensity bouts. But then if we if we think about as a whole and almost coming back to this concept of, of during training, I think we've got, we've got to think about what do these people do on a day-to-day basis? Maybe their event is far more endurance-based, but most people's training will comprise anaerobic and aerobic components. And so potentially during those more anaerobic components, again, as Craig mentioned, perhaps as long as they go to their to their maximum and allow themselves to do more because they can do more, then indirectly via their training, that might lead to important adaptations or further adaptations which could then improve their aerobic performance during their specific events, for example. So, Craig, as we're talking about this, of course, we're in danger of suggesting that, you know, it's simply just a case of things like the accumulation of hydrogen ions and the body's going to try and buffer it using, trying to increase these carnosine concentrations and so on. But, of course, there's more going on there, and it's not the only buffering mechanism. You know, is that, like Brian is just suggesting, is that the danger of where some of this research has gone is because it is very... It, you know, it has isolated things down to that one method of, of buffering, or or is there other other mechanisms at play here that maybe other kinds of supplements could play a role with, or the diet, or or such? You know, what are the what are the things that we should be aware of in that regard? I mean, I suppose that there's two key things there in relation to the to the sort of carnosine topic itself. I mean, one of the other, I mean, I mean, there are a number of other purported physiological roles for carnosine, and two where they, there might be some general relevance is one, its purported ability to be able to regulate carnosine transients in the skeletal muscle, so, so sort of movement into and out of the sarcoplasmic reticulum and or the sensitivity of the contractile apparatus to, to carnosine itself. And of course, that would directly impact upon you know, muscle force production, muscle relaxation, which undoubtedly would, in theory, impact on performance. And the other one is potentially its, its ability to protect against reactive species production. The latter... 
I think is a, is, is a lot more speculative and particularly in relation to exercise performance. I don't, I don't think Carnazine's role there is particularly pertinent, but, but certainly the first one is, you know, in terms of calcium sensitivity or mobilization, it is, is a, is, is a potential interest. The only reason why you see, and, and there are there are a number of isolated muscle preparation studies, so sort of where, where they're, they're sort of really reducing that down to the performance of single muscle fibers that show that this is a, a plausible mechanism that, that carnosine can um, contribute to. But whenever we, let me go back a step, so, but if that were the case and you scale that up to a whole human, then in theory, the potential performance effects of carnosine would be much, much wider than, than what we see. Um, and what we really see is, as Brian said, particularly in his recent meta-analysis and, and, and generally the, the subsequent data have shown the same sort of thing, is that we see these performance effects within a very, very narrow and intensity win- uh, time and intensity window. And that kind of really does point more towards a, you know, an intracellular pH-mediated effect rather than something that so, for example, if, if the calcium hypothesis were to be true, you might even expect to see positive effects on one repetition max performance, for example. You know, really short activities like that, and that's not what, what we generally see. doesn't, of course, rule out that it may, could well be a contributory factor or anything like that. Of course, it's far more complicated than that. But, but generally, on a, on a whole human level, if you want to put it like that, we we largely see most of the evidence pointing towards that intracellular pH regulation role. And I forgot the second part of the question. What was the second part of the question on? Well, I could, I, well, actually part of this could segue as well into some of this conversation. If someone had missed the references to beta-alanine, might think we're talking about another kind of, of buffer, like sodium bicarbonate, for example. Ah, yeah, that was it. And that, luckily, I stayed with you, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah, I was yeah. just to see if you're still listening, Lauren. Yeah, yeah, no, I, uh, I have, I, I'm still there, so it's good. But and, I, and actually, I'll take this, I'll take this, I'll carry this over to Brian because I, I know in your review, your 2018 review, you're talking about about the fact that you could actually combine this with something else like sodium bicarbonate, but Again, as I was mentioning earlier, that you know, there's there's one there's more than one way the body tends to do certain things, and likewise, there's more than one way that we attempt to, for example, delay the onset of fatigue. And you can even bring in the conversation of sports psychology in another conversation as it relates to this. You know, there's some grey areas, of course, on on what causes fatigue, and then you know, are we talking about neuromuscular fatigue or other types of fatigue? I don't want to open up a too much of a hornet's nest here, but but what about what about things like sodium bicarbonate? I know it's very difficult to look at these things combined, but what are the implications of these other buffering aids? Sure, it's it's certainly important because, as we all know, really that most most athletes will not just take one specific supplement; they'll take many. Probably a lot will take as many as possible, and so we we do need to kind of get a, a bit of an idea of how these in combination function. And now there has been quite a bit of work now, I believe, with sort of beta-alanine and, and potentially creatine. Craig touched upon creatine earlier. But as you mentioned, so sodium bicarbonate is, is another buffer. And so actually back during my, during my PhD, myself and, and, and Craig, we decided to look at, you know, if we take both beta-alanine and sodium bicarb, could we 
get greater benefits than with either of those supplements alone when they're combined. Now, that's because obviously we have intracellular buffering, which we have carnosine and, and other potential uh, compounds as well. But then we also have the, the efflux of hydrogen, hydrogen ions out of the working muscle. And the amount that goes out or the rate at which this goes out appears to be linked to the amount of circulating bicarbonate. So if we supplement with sodium bicarbonate, we can increase bicarbonate in our blood. And this leads to added efflux of hydrogen ions out of the working muscle. So theoretically, you're doing even more buffering by not only just in increasing carnosine, you're also increasing that movement out of, the, out of the muscle. And so our initial study suggested that there was, was something going on, but maybe sort of to, to round it off more, more completely within, a, within our meta-analysis as well, we took, had a look at all the available data at that moment along the lines of seven or eight studies, I believe. And yeah, we, we did show that including sodium bicarbonate alongside beta-alanine does seem to lead to greater exercise improvements than beta-alanine alone. Obviously, again, everything will depend on a little bit more about the type of exercise, etc. But um, it does suggest that these two can complement each other. So, look, I think, we, you know, there's a lot to this, and people can read about this in more detail in the various resources I'll, I'll tag on to the, to the podcast website page uh, as a series of notes and resources for this episode, which I highly recommend everyone listens to because we can't cover every topic on this. But inevitably, people are pretty convinced to take a pill or a supplement or a drink or whatever if they feel it's going to positively impact their performance and in fact the more serious the athlete the more motivated they are to do what they can legally hopefully to achieve that but of course there are implications Craig of ingesting a substance and by that I mean not everything happens super fast like it might do with say caffeine can be a pretty acute effect if we just focus on beta alanine of course supplementation what happens when you consume it and what happens if you consume a bit too much or not enough? Or what you know, what are what are the implications of ingesting beta alanine? Also, with a focus on it actually being of any benefit, you know, which is an important consideration. Yes, there's a, a number of questions wrapped up into one there, Lauren, and I'm, I'm likely to forget. Very half quick. Of I'm going to be testing you, you're listening again. So the first thing is really, I think what, what seems to be important as far as beta-alanine consumption is concerned and the amount of carnosine that you then load, for want of a better word, into muscle, is the total amount of beta-alanine that you consume. So generally, a lot of our studies initially focused on sort of 6.4 grams, somewhere between 5 and, and 6.4 grams per day over a four-week period. And, and there we were getting about, you know, let's say sort of 40 to 60% increases in the, in the skeletal muscle content of carnosine. But equally, if you were to go to a, a lower dose than that, you would go to, go to 3.2 grams per day and you were to take that supplement for twice as long, you might reasonably expect a, a similar kind of increase in the skeletal muscle con concentration or content, I should say. 
if you half that down again and go for 1.6 grams per day, but double the time again, then again, you know, the same sort of thing might be anticipated. So in terms of that, there's not a, a massive concern about dose. In terms of significant outcomes, of course, beta alanine at really, really high doses, you know, is thought to be neurotoxic, but and we're talking at many folds higher than what, what we're giving here. Um, so, so in terms of these amounts, there's, there's not much of a risk of that. The, the, the predominant side effect is something called paresthesia. And the, the paresthesia is a, a bit like a tingling sensation, a bit like a pins and needles supplementation that you normally get in the extremity. So it's sort of fingers and forearms, feet and toes, face, backside sometimes, strangely. It's kind of that sort of um, tingling sensation. And, and that's thought to be related to the appearance of the beta-alanine in, in plasma. So obviously, the more you give, in theory, the, the greater and the faster the increase you, you get in, in, the, in the plasma concentration of the beta-alanine, the more chance you've then got of experiencing paresthesia. So one of the first studies that, that we did, again, that's published in that 2006 paper, is to give 10, 20, and 40 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. And, and one of the things, and this was in free powder, and I'll come back to the distinction between free powder and a, and a sustained release formulation in a minute. But, but in free powder, when you gave 10, you got a sort of small increase in the, in the plasma concentration, but you, you didn't really get too many people experiencing any of these symptoms of paresthesia. At 20, you start to get a bigger appearance and a, a quicker appearance in, in the plasma, but you've got a few more people with paresthesia. And then when you get 40, the, the paresthesia symptoms were significant, <laughs> let's say. So you could really sort of feel those, that pins and needles, was, it was much sharper. It was a much more, rather than being a sort of a semi-interesting, semi-comfortable feeling, it was quite a sharp sort of paresthesia feeling. That's really what, limited our our approach to dosing at that time in free powder we started to look at you know 10 milligrams per kilogram body weight because one of the other things of course is you, you know in a study you don't want paresthesia because you then destroy the double blinding of your study if, you, if you're giving a, the, the person paresthesia they know they're on the beta element so that's why we went for that subsequently there are um, sustained release formulations that have been developed we kind of put a, a physical barrier to the release of beta alanine uh, into into the circulation from the gut and now we can sort of give around 20 milligrams per kilogram body weight without you know significant generally significant symptoms so i hope that answered broadly your question yeah because well, i missed anything there brian well brian you could Quickly, just we, we can get a little bit more practical with this now uh, as we draw draw this to an end. It's not just a case of should you or shouldn't you take it. I think that there's an argument for those that are pretty serious with their, their training and performance, particularly high-intensity training and those that are operating in the, in sort of the maximal side of that. But what actual training or, or sport scenarios, is there really a good argument for using beta alanine? Because we're talking about from sort of 30 seconds to 10 minutes, but specifically, just so people can contextualize what that would be, what, what are the areas that you feel this has the greatest value? 
Yeah, I think we can actually be quite quite broad um, with what kind of athlete, what kind of individual could could potentially get some benefits from from beta alanine. So yeah, we've mentioned obviously that those kinds of thirty seconds to ten minute activities. If an individual's main competition is sort of 800 meter running, 1500 meter running, four kilometer cycling time trial, 2000 meter rowing. These are really sort of those kinds of activities that are slap bang in the middle that you would expect for beta alanine to potentially have a positive improvement. But but as, as we've mentioned, I think we need to look at individuals training. And so if you look at either side of those thresholds, so you know, anything less than 30 seconds, that could be people involved in, potentially in strength could be sort of a 100-meter runner or a 200-meter runner. Again, these people, their, their training doesn't involve simply turning up at the track, run 100 meters, and then go home. They've got high-intensity components to their training, which are intermittent, which also seems to be highly improved with beta-alanine supplementation. You know? So even these shorter durations, if they're repeated, these can also really benefit from beta-alanine supplement, supplementation, it seems. And then again, as I mentioned, you've got you've got the other end, and and certainly sort of the more endurance sports like cycling, like a marathon, you know, cycling in particular, you've got moments of high intensity activity as well during you know not only during training but during these activities. You you might have a hill climb, you have an intermediate sprint, a breakaway, a final sprint, and so particularly during these moments as well you would expect beta-alanine to, to potentially have, have a, a benefit. So I really think the implications are quite, quite widespread. But then again, you know, you need to look, are you that competitive athlete where, you know, a supplement that would potentially lead to a half a percent, one percent improvement, that would be a real benefit for you. But if you're just going out with your mates and, and, and cycling on the road and, and going for a beer afterwards or midway through, how much is that beta-alanine really going to make a difference for you? Probably very little. So you're probably looking more towards those those guys where it really, really makes, makes a difference. Yeah, yeah, of course. In, in the context of looking at it from a bigger picture perspective and the spectrum of recreational to elite athlete, I think, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty clear. And that's why I, I like to use the phrase, you can, but should you? You know, there's a lot of things that you can do. Maybe you should bear in mind that you do need to be putting in putting in the effort into the training to deserve the benefits that includes warranting need for these additional support things. But Craig, if, if somebody's going to take beta, beta alanine, and, and bearing in mind you did mention before that the type of diet you habitually consume could have an implication for determining the, the sort of the strength of, of your need for beta alanine supplementation but of course it is also dose dependent and it isn't necessarily something that's going to do anything for you uh, one day prior to an event you know what are the what are the aspects of that that, that we need to be aware of that the research has shown us today well, I mean, I mean well, to, so to start at the end so to speak it definitely isn't going to do anything for you if you consume it one day prior to the event you, you absolutely you're absolutely right i mean what it might do i suppose is give you a nice tingle of paresthesia and, and you might get a nice sort of placebo and belief effect but that's 
that's nothing physiological going on there. That's what the paresthesia is. But I mean, the performance enhancement effect is nothing is nothing physiological there. That's a that's a, a pure placebo effect. But a placebo effect is still an effect, right? So I mean, I guess that there is that to be said for it. But but nonetheless, if we talk about it from a from the purist perspective, I would say you know, so, so you, you're looking to load the muscle. You, you have to load the muscle to get that kind of the, to get the kind of response that that we're talking about today in terms of increases in intramuscular buffering. Like I say, most of our studies really have, have played around with giving 6.4 grams per day over at least a four-week period or lower doses over longer periods. But, but Brian has has conducted a, a study of 6.4 grams per day for up to six months and looked at some of the performance effects, the, the muscle carnosine accumulation effects, and also and some of the, the safety effects of, of the supplement, because one of the potential problems that, that we're particularly concerned with at the time is, is whether, because basically the beta-alanine and, and another molecule called taurine share the same transporter for uptake into the, to the muscle, we're a little bit concerned that giving these higher doses of beta-alanine over time would reduce then the, the taurine uptake into muscle. And we were a little bit concerned about that in skeletal muscle, but more concerned if that were to become an issue in cardiac muscle. From what we can tell from, from these sort of longer term studies, there isn't such a significant concern about that. At least, you know, that's, that's the sort of one of the higher doses we, we tended to use in the, in the studies that we've done over that six month period. So it seems relatively safe in, in those terms. But, but certainly, I think, so the longer you keep using it, in theory, the slower the rate of accumulation in the muscle carnosine content becomes. So if you look at Chester Hill's study, where we conducted a 10-week study, I think you've got something like a 60% increase in the muscle carnosine content after four weeks, and then an, an another six weeks of supplementation on top of that only increased that by about another 20%. You know, in Brian's six-month study, which he would be more qualified to talk about than I, there wasn't really a very specific pattern in terms of the loading. So if you look at it on a, on a mean level, you kind of see uh, see what you expect to see. But if you if you look at it on an individual by individual level, some individuals were still quite significantly increasing their content between twenty and twenty four weeks. Now, some of that might be confounded by sort of you know multiple biopsies and the site at which you take the biopsy and other bits and pieces like that. But but nonetheless, it was it was quite an interesting finding that the that the timing and rates of accumulation weren't completely consistent between individuals. To summarise briefly, the, the, the critical bit is that you need to load the muscle to get the types of effects that we're talking about. Some studies have suggested that you could do that in, you know, if you're talking a, a reasonably high dose, like 6.4 grams per day, you, you could get something worthwhile in a couple of weeks. Like I said, most of our studies have gone out to four weeks at least. And obviously, like I said, if you reduce that dose down lower because you don't want, you know, the paresthesia or, or something like that, then you need to think about dosing over a longer period than that. Thanks, Craig, for that. We've only got a number of minutes here, I think, until we need to end this. But Brian, is this only for performance or is there an argument for beta-alanine supplementation and health? Is there anything quickly you wanted to cover on that? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not my specific area, but obviously I know Craig and colleagues here at the university do do work in this area, primarily due to its other, carnosine's other potential roles 
as potentially an antioxidant or improving calcium sensitivity, inhibition of sort of glycation end products. It has potential roles in, in, in health and disease. A colleague here at the, the university, Guy Arcioli, he's also leading some fantastic projects where they're looking at carnosine knockout animals and seeing how this influences upon their, not only their exercise capacity, but also their health. And it does seem to have sort of some, some drastic health implications when we see a loss in, in carnosine or no carnosine mm. or histidine-containing dipeptides in muscle, in heart, because it, it's also found in, in other tissues. Now, how much that actually translates into you know, benefits in humans, we don't know. A lot of the studies looking at the health benefits provide sort of carnosine rather than beta-alanine, but then as Craig mentioned, that's sort of immediately cleaved in, in the blood. And so how relevant that is, it's probably currently up for debate. It's certainly a, an area of interest and an area that a lot of people are focusing on now. Because I think, you know, we're, we're quite certain that there are a lot of positive performance outcomes. But I think a lot, of, a lot more work, a lot more in vivo work in humans needs to be done to really nail down this, its health potential. Thanks for that. I mean, uh, an elephant in the room on that, which is one we haven't got time to get into, and maybe we shouldn't anyway, is obviously this business of people, for various reasons, will choose to omit a class of food like animal products, for example. And that has obvious implications for carnosine intake and carnosine and, and creatine as well for another conversation. But Craig, for those that, for whatever reason, they are not going to be consuming much if any any animal products is particularly for athletes because this is our focus obviously for those that have an interest in optimizing exercise capacity and performance is is taking beta alanine therefore a particularly good idea you feel i know we sort of talked about that but since we've mentioned it here is that something that you feel does have a strong argument for well i mean you know Far be it for me to tell anybody what to consume and what not to consume, but but certainly if I if I take it from the perspective of the composition of of a vegetarian or a, or a vegan diet would be lower, no doubt about it. In in beta alanine and carnosine content, it would be lower in creatine content. So if that individual is also looking to optimize their high intensity exercise performance and and capacity, then I would certainly suggest it would be something that they might at least want to strongly think about, certainly, yeah. because, you know, these are important compounds for that type of activity. And there is no doubt that they would be getting less in their diet than even somebody who is consuming an, an omnivorous or a, a high meat-containing diet and even then supplementing potentially on top of that. Of course, you know, supplementation alone, you can probably reach muscle saturation for something like creatine, but we don't really know what that that is for, for carnosine yet. We don't really know what the, the whether there is a ceiling and what, well, there will be, but we don't really know what that ceiling effect for for the accumulation of carnosine is. And that's, that just brings us right back to almost the beginning of this conversation where we talked about the difference between a supplement or an ergogenic aid and, of course, you know, in those people that don't eat those foods that contain that, there is a risk of being nowhere near optimizing their levels. They might actually have a deficiency. 
or an insufficiency, which in itself is interesting. But of course, that's not really an area that's that's being researched, is it? Because it's, it, well, what is it? I mean, it's not really something that I think is an area that, you know, has been a great, there's not been much argument to focus on that, I guess. No, I mean, uh, there, there are the odd study that, that have been done by, by you know, our, our group and our, and our wider groups and a collaboration but between our group at NTU and the guys at, in Sao Paulo. But, yeah, generally speaking, it is a, an under, it is an under-researched, you know, particularly the, the, the vegetarian and vegan athlete group is under-researched in that, in that area. And it, it seems to be something that is becoming more and more popular and, and so it might become becoming more and more important to conduct a few more studies in, in this specific area. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the idea that. of levelling the field, so to speak, dietarily. Look, guys, we, we could go on for hours and there are certainly areas that we haven't had time to get into and, of course, that's why I'm going to have everyone look at your um, numerous contributions that we can find into the literature and various other bits and bobs I've accumulated, including our previous podcast, Craig, which we got into a few things that we didn't get into in this. So I think there's a value to, to all of that. But Brian, just sort of by way of a quick, almost tweetable summary then, you know, why should we why should we take beta amine? What's your quick response to that question? Uh, because you could potentially improve your exercise performance. I think that's 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 the main thing that we're looking at here. So that, that would be my main snippet. Take beta-alanine chronically to be able to potentially improve your exercise capacity and performance. Yeah, the cost of benefit is hugely on the benefit, isn't it? With very little cost. I mean, even if the, the financial cost of beta-alanine isn't particularly high compared to what we're trying to achieve. Yeah. I, in fact, I don't think I've ever looked at how much beta-alanine actually costs. But yeah, you know, for those of you who can afford it, who want to give it a try... Go for it, as, as Craig said. You know, who am I to to stop you? So, and Craig, just finally, then future perspectives. Where do we go from here? I know you're thinking about these things already. Is there anything you wanted to share with us on that topic? I mean, you know, most of the things that our lab are doing now is is going more down the the, the health potential of, of beta alanine and carnosine supplementation. So you mentioned, you know, up front that, that Joe Matthews is doing some. Some work with me on this, looking at you know the potential for for beta alanine and, and, and carnosine supplementation to to improve the health of pre diabetic and diabetic individuals. I've got a, a new PhD student, Jay Crichton, who's come in to look at potential implications for cardiac function, cardiac muscle function. And um, so that's kind of where where our lab is going. And like I said, really much of the top class. Performance work now in this area is being carried on by Brian and the, the group over in, in Sao Paulo, looking at you know the implications of different dosing strategies and, and things like this, looking for what the ceiling might be for the accumulation in skeletal muscle, combining the beta-alanine supplement with other supplements. I mean, I, I think Brian alluded to that point earlier where if you get an athlete, it's quite and I, and I had this conversation with, with Jenny Pierce, actually, when she was working for the English Institute of Sport many, many years ago. And she, she sort of said to me, well, the question is not really whether beta-alanine works, it's whether beta-alanine plus sodium bicarbonate plus creatine plus nitrates work. Because that's really half the time what, <laughs> what many, many athletes will be actually doing. And of course, what, you know, one of the things we didn't get into here is that, that that might not necessarily be the most sensible approach. You might be negating the effects of 
sometimes one supplement. You, you can't just assume that more is going to be better. And don't complicate matters, Craig. <laughs> no, that's probably, not, that's probably yeah. not the statement to finish on, really. Is it? <laughs> Look, it's been awesome. All sorts of gems came up in that. I know that that will enrich many people's knowledge on this on this topic, whatever their level of education on on this. There was much to be gained from that. Like I said, I'll attach notes and various other things as well as there will be a transcript to this conversation which hopefully the transcriber will uh we've got to give them a nod these people should be given a phd by the time they transcribe all of my podcasts but if people want to follow you and your work i'll put links to twitter handles and research gates but craig you're reasonably consistent in your tweeting and so on what's the best way to follow you uh in terms of your outputs yeah, probably I put, put most of the things onto Twitter. That's probably the best way. I tend to either, you know, put out my own content or retweet, you know, interesting content. I'm becoming a grumpy old man on Twitter now, though. So pieces <laughs> I put out. But yeah, that's probably the best way. ResearchGate as well. Most of most of the stuff goes goes onto there. They're probably the two easiest ways. Yeah, that's great. But look, there's no fake news on uh, Craig Sales' account. So <laughs> highly recommended. Then, and Brian, what about yourself? Yeah, they can follow me on Twitter at bicycle underscore Brian. That's Brian with a Y. You know, if you fancy following to see all the all the bicycle related things I throw out there, and then obviously occasionally are the work that comes out from our lab as well. That's probably where the best place to find me. Brilliant. Okay, well, look, I'll be sure to do that. Thank you very much, guys. I I really enjoyed this this conversation today, and I appreciate we're all busy trying to mix that up with other crazy things that are going on in the world right now but um, it's good to have escaped the last hour and a half and talk about these things that we all love like i said i will link to everything in this podcast episode you can check all of that out via our website at www.theiopn.com and just follow the links to the podcast i of course am laurel bannock and look forward to bringing another episode of we do science back to you all very very soon stay safe everyone and take care